0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott.
1: Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. America is in crisis from the university to the workplace, Toxic ideas, first spread by higher education, have undermined humanistic values, fueled intolerance, and widened divisions in our larger culture. People like Chaucer, Shakespeare, and Milton, well, they're oppressive. American history, it's all about tyranny. Professors correcting grammar and spelling, or employers hiring by merit, well, that is racist and sexist. Students emerge into the working world believing that human beings are defined by their skin color, gender, and sexual preference, and that oppression based on these characteristics is the American experience. Speech that challenges these campus orthodoxies is silenced with force. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with Heather McDonald, who's a researcher and an author who has delved into the idea of diversity and what's gone wrong with it in incredible detail. And you're definitely going to want to hear this show. She takes on what she sees as a metastasizing diversity bureaucracy in society and academia, a bureaucracy that sees racism and sexism in every interaction. And what she argues is that we are creating a nation of narrowed minds primed for grievance and that we are putting our competitive edge at risk. I'm Armin Braun. We'll start talking about the diversity delusion when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant, and my guest for this part of today's show is Heather MacDonald, who is the author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, welcome to Positive Parenting.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me on, Armin. I'm, I'm honored to be on here.
1: Well, it's great to have you, and a lot of the audience have college kids, or college age kids, and a lot more of them are going to have them at some point in the not too distant future, so I thought it would be really interesting to have you on to talk about what's going on on college campuses that a lot of people don't hear about, unless they're they're looking at, I suppose, conservative media, it's something that really just doesn't seem to get picked up too terribly much in the mainstream media. And can you give us just a, an overall picture, then we want to get into some details about how the colleges that you and I went to when, when things were the bastion of free speech and you could entertain different ideas and explore different ideas, these colleges, that, that, that particular philosophy seems to have gone by the wayside in a lot of places?
3: Well, colleges have dedicated themselves to promoting uh, racial and gender victimology, they are teaching students. To think of themselves either as victims which is a highly uh, enviable position to be in it, it, it comes with a massive amount of status with power above all else with the power to uh, denounce uh, perceived racists and sexist based on virtually no evidence whatsoever the power to command ever greater Bureaucratic spending uh, dedicated to extirpating this phantom racism and sexism. Uh, and if you're not in a highly favored victim group, you are by definition an oppressor. Uh, the the vision of American society and Western civilization in general that has been embraced by a large segment of the faculty uh Virtually anybody who's been a recent hire in the humanities for the last two or three decades uh, is very likely to be specializing in this form of uh, victimology. It's also been identified as grievance politics or identity politics. And the bureaucracy, the the ever-ballooning bureaucracies on college campuses, which is what's driving the tuition up to such obscenely, Great Heights is also dedicated to the just fantastical idea that colleges are places of discrimination. But even if your viewers or listeners rather have not noticed this in the mainstream media when it comes to colleges, I mean, if they've been paying attention to the Democratic primaries, (laughs) uh, they've they should be able to see that this is very quickly infusing our public life uh, where you have the candidates vying to be the top dog to check off as many boxes in what is known as intersectionality, which is the idea that uh, if if you can check off several different victim boxes so you're not just black, but you're a black female. And you're not just a black female, but you're a trans black female. Yeah. You get to, yeah. to raise yourself to the roost, top of the roost. And we've seen the Democratic candidates playing the race card against each other, playing the, the uh, uh, gender card against each other. And, and that, depending on where our politics go in this country, is going to become more and more the dominant discourse in America.
1: How did we get here? I mean, that—that's the thing that puzzles me. I—I I, just—I yeah, went to San Francisco State for undergrad, which was pretty political, and there were lots of protests and all sorts of things going on. And I remember getting into big arguments with, with students out in, in front of the student union building, and generally it was—it was fairly civil. Some of it was ugly, but at least it was allowed but now you can't even have these things people i mean there've there been people go running off to the diversity officers or they complain to the dean i remember right after the the 2016 elections uh, there there were some situations in campuses i can't remember which ones where somebody had written trump on the ground or somebody's wearing a make america great again hat and and that is, sets off triggers for people and there have to be safe spaces i mean how did we get to 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 go from this place where colleges are places where where there should be diversity of thought, if nothing else, to places where diversity of thought is suppressed and if you don't toe the party line, you're in trouble.
3: Well, it's a natural conclusion of what started happening in the 1980s when you had the curriculum being invaded by the very uh, anti-intellectual, anti-humanistic idea that the most important thing about a person is his gonads and melanin. Uh, And so you had things like the protest at Stanford University in the 1980s against Stanford's rather modest, non-demanding core curriculum, which asked freshmen to spend some time reading the great monuments of western civilization and this was deemed by the campus radicals as oppressive to women and people of color you had jesse jackson show up on campus leading the infamous chant hey hey ho ho western civ has got to go western civ (laughs) being the colloquial name for the course but but obviously i mean what we're seeing now is a very literal instantiation of that where Uh, some of the fundamental cornerstones of Western liberal democracy, such as due process, presumption of innocence, are being jettisoned in the case of of the campus rape culture, in the case of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, where a significant portion of the Senate Judiciary Committee adopted the believed survivor's mantra, which says that any female who alleges a sexual assault, is per se entitled to belief. So, uh,
2: well, l- l- you know, let me, I'm, let me I'm stop a little you. more
3: cynical than you are about the extent to which colleges were, since the 1960s at least, truly freewheeling places. I mean, yeah. you had a nominal free speech movement at Berkeley, but at the very same time you had Herbert Merc- Marcuse preaching repressive tolerance, which is the idea that we see now, which is that mm. In order to be tolerant to certain groups, you have to be intolerant towards others
1: right, um right and that's and, okay and, and then and, there's a there's and a large coming
3: as well is of course the vast growth of the bureaucracy, which has a stake in in perpetuating this lie that colleges in particular in American society in general are are profoundly bigoted.
1: Yeah. You know, you mentioned the rape culture, which is something that as the father of three daughters, I, I certainly am concerned about. And you hear a lot about the rape culture and uh, everybody seems to be throwing this figure around about one in five women on campus is going to be sexually assaulted. And Obama mentioned that at one point and, and, and many, many politicians mentioned this. And uh, you you made the the point in the book, which is a point that I had made in, independently. I guess just the logic of it is that if I were to have to to want to send my children into an environment where they had a one in five chance of being raped, I, I would be an idiot. I mean, what what sort of a parent is going to send a child, the daughter in particular, into that sort of environment? And but but people just want to take this one in five figure and run with it and when you look at the studies and you have looked at the studies extensively the the questions are has somebody looked at you in a way that made you feel uncomfortable or did somebody ask you to go out more than once and those things get classified as assaults talk about that for just a minute
3: well if you ask the people that the researchers characterizes rape victims directly, do they think they've been raped, the vast majority say they have not. And a significant, almost half, go on to have sex again with the people whom the rape researchers are categorizing as their rapists. Now, I would argue that there's nothing short of murder that is more traumatic and violent for a female than to be raped. And the idea that one would voluntarily have sex again with one's racist, rapist rather, is preposterous. I mean, it, it discredits this whole idea on its face. Um, But again, this comes out of the fact that there is a very large institutional interest uh, in, in, in categorizing campuses as places of, of this victimhood. And I mean, the most perverse thing about colleges today is you cannot say anything that is more insulting to a college bureaucrat or president than to say, your campus is tolerant. Your campus is safe. Your campus is the most open-minded, at least if you're not a conservative, environment and human history towards history's traditionally marginalized groups. If you say that, if you say there is not a rape crisis going on, they will be furious at you. It is a very strange thing that they are deliberately embracing a narrative that uh, says that they are harboring hatred
1: talking with Heather McDonald, who's the author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Heather about other things that are going on on campuses that you really need to hear about. I'm Armin Brat. You're listening to Positive Parenting.
2: Hey, Kevin. Thinking about saving for retirement?
1: Yeah, but how do I start?
2: It's easy with Avvo,
0: a retirement coach. Let's learn the Avvo bet. Hey! for taking action not anxiety no kevin you're gonna be fine you sing barely v is for variety huh change up my strategy okay pose for optimize your savings let avo lead the way visit aceyourretirement.org today a message from aarp and the ad council
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brown. If you're just joining us talking with Heather MacDonald, the author of The Diversity Delusion, we were just talking about the, the rape culture and the, the need that people seem to have to make their campuses dangerous, unsafe places, which is interesting because they have this, as you mentioned earlier, the, this massive and growing bureaucracy designed to overcome these things. And they keep bringing in more people who are going to overcome these things and to make the campus diverse and safe. But it never seems to happen. And the reason why it never seems to happen is because these people would be out of jobs if it did. So is there an end in sight? How do we we move things back to a more logical place where campuses can really be safe spaces, but safe in the meaning of being able to explore and learn as opposed to being able to be free from anything you don't want to hear.
3: Well, first of all, I would junk entirely uh, any rhetoric of safety. I, I mean, uh, and I would also emphasize there. There was a somewhat of an ambiguity in in your last statement, Armin, about as to whether there is in fact. Uh, a problem with bigotry and discrimination on campuses. And the problem is simply that we've overdone it on the bureaucratic end. I'm just going to state baldly, there is not a problem. There is not a single academic department in the country that is not twisting itself into knots to try to hire and promote as many so-called underrepresented minorities and females as possible. It is an obsession. It's all, every every faculty search, and the most scary thing is, is that this is happening in the sciences, yeah. where yeah. science departments are being mandated to put gender and race ahead of scientific qualifications, and there's not a single mm-hmm. selective college, minimally selective college in the country that is not employing massive racial preferences in admissions. Admitting students with much lower academic credentials than their peers simply because they're black and Hispanic, something that puts those students at great academic disadvantage. So I just want your listeners to be perfectly confident in their understanding that this is a false narrative the way you beat it back is by telling the truth i don't know any other way Mm -hmm. and it, it it needs to be said as well about our country because this is going to be the dominant theme if if uh what we've seen in the democratic primary so far becomes the reality in the white house uh we are gonna be on one long crusade against alleged pervasive American bigotry. Now of course this country has an extremely uh problematic, hypocritical, violent past towards blacks. We were in violation of our founding principles with slavery and de jure segregation. That is undeniable. There's not a single student today whose entire American history course is not focused on that, but we have made extraordinary progress. Again, there's not a single mainstream institution, there's not a single law firm, corporation, bank, uh, nonprofit, foundation, media, newspaper, magazine, publishing house that is not giving preferences. Yeah. to minorities and women. So we, somebody has to start telling the truth because this narrative is taking over and it is putting, to be perfectly blunt, if you have a white male son and he is not trans or gay, woe unto him. Hmm. He is going to face discrimination for the rest of his life. He is going to have to be twice as good to get that faculty position, to get admitted to a law school, a law firm, to be promoted because the pressure is in the opposite direction.
1: Heather, let's take back a a couple of steps and go back to the the racial preferences and and that uh, in hiring and also in admissions. And... Talk about the, the effect that that has. I mean, it's you mentioned that, that students are being admitted with lower scores, and that sets them up for academic failure, which ends up perpetuating the idea, because people can then look at graduation rates, and they say, well, you're not graduating enough minority students. And what can, I mean, so th- there's that, but I also want you to talk about the effect that that's having, particularly in science, which you mentioned, which is, if people are being brought in, and they don't have the proper qualifications, and being African American or Hispanic or or some other affected minority is more important than having made scientific discoveries or having a, a strong body of knowledge. We're going to be undermining our ability to succeed in, in future generations by being the scientific powerhouse that the United States has been.
3: Oh, absolutely. China doesn't give a damn about so-called diversity. They just want the best scientists. They want to just crush us when it comes to technology, and they are hiring based on one thing and one thing only, and that's scientific merit. We are not doing that, uh, and and we're spending hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars every year funneled out through the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health to underwrite these phony studies searching for microaggressions in in the STEM fields, microaggressions is another term of art that's come out of the universities that refers to racism invisible to the human eye, uh, imaginary racism. Uh, and and pr- and the federal government, I'm sorry to say this is continuing under Trump, is pressuring science departments to hire based on race and gender. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is... Uh, when it comes to the gender issue, at least, there are natural differences between males and females. Not, I'm not talking about any individual. I'm talking about averages. And the drive, the entrepreneurial drive, it, it is not an accident that the people that we have seen that are the successful startup tech, tech founders in Silicon Valley they are overwhelmingly male. That is not because of discrimination. It is because the risk-taking, the competitive drive, the desire to crush your competitors, to create something, to be, uh, you know, a, a uh, captain of industry. Those traits are found at higher levels in males and. Mm-hmm. The highest end of, of science math skills, as is true of the lowest end of math cluelessness, males outnumber females. And so.
1: Yeah, well, that, that isn't to say, of course, I know that, that somebody's going to be I'm listening not saying to this about and say. Any
3: individual, uh, you know, right. do not think that I'm telling that your daughter cannot win a Nobel Prize. Of I'm course. I'm saying that what you're going to see in the aggregate is a is a uh, male dominated field if we if we start imposing quotas to g- engineer 50-50 gender diversity which is what you have going on an effort at, at the big tech companies like Google and Microsoft we are going to be uh, elevating less less competent talent over most more competent talent
1: so we only have just a minute left but i want you to talk about something which i think is very important which is that how do we though encourage more minority applicants and how do we ensure that they have the skills where they can succeed
3: well they're being encouraged all the time uh... you know i don't know if it's up to we any longer the academic skills gap is huge. It's a standard deviation in SAT scores. It hasn't budged for decades. If everybody emulated Asians, we wouldn't have a skills gap. The culture has to change to put an emphasis on academic achievement. Right now, you have an extremely destructive idea in inner city culture, which is that academic achievement, academic effort is acting white. As long as that's the case, Uh, The skills gap is is going to persist. Parents have to be obsessive. They have to monitor. Are their kids actually going to school? Are they taking their textbooks home? Are they studying? Are they not hanging out on the corner? Are they deferring gratification and studying rather than going to parties? Uh, At this point, I don't think there's a whole lot more that we can do collectively. Uh, This has to be an internal culture change.
1: Heather McDonald's, the author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, thank you. Fascinating discussion and a really interesting book. Thanks again for coming on the show.
3: Thank you, Armin. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning.
0: Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth, spread the truth. A message from Truth, the ad council, and on ONDCP.
1: Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Braat, and it's time for a Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my family loves being in the water, whether it's a pool, a lake, the ocean, or even a bathtub. But every summer, sure as clockwork, stories of children drowning start popping up like mushrooms. It seems to me that drownings aren't really any more common than they used to be. There's just more media coverage. But the big issue is what we can do to be safe around the water. You're absolutely right. According to the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, the CPSC, the number of drownings has stayed roughly consistent for the past few years, and media coverage of drownings tends to pick up in the summer, which, as far as I'm concerned, is a good thing. Roughly 350 children under 15 drown in pools and spas every year. Three-quarters of those kids are under five. Every one of those deaths is a tragedy, especially when you consider that most are completely preventable. In addition, every year, about 5,000 children under 15 are involved in non-fatal submersion injuries, better known as near drownings, that require emergency room treatment. Many result in permanent injury, including brain damage, and again, most are preventable. Here are some guidelines, some are provided by the CPSC, that will help keep your family safe this summer. Appoint a designated watcher a responsible adult or teen who will focus 100% on the people who are in or near the spa, pool, river, or other body of water. That means absolutely, positively, no reading, talking on the phone, playing games, chatting with friends, or anything else. Your designated watcher should pay particular attention to boys. Adults often play down boys' roughhousing and excessive risk-taking, as boys will be boys. But the consequences of that lackadaisical attitude can be deadly. Boys are twice as likely as girls to drown in swimming pools, and African-American boys are 4 to 15 times more likely than white boys to drown in pools. Interestingly, girls are more likely than boys to drown in bathtubs, which is where 10% of drownings occur. Make sure that all pools and spas are surrounded by a four-sided fence with a self-closing, self-latching gate. This will keep younger kids from wandering into the pool area. Experts estimate that having four-sided fencing could prevent 50 to 90% of drownings and near drownings. Pool covers can add an extra layer of safety, but be sure the cover complies with the highest safety standards and is strong enough for an adult to walk on. Empty toddler pools and store them upside down. Children can drown in as little as half an inch of water. Learn how to swim and teach your kids to swim. Take a CPR class to teach us how to perform this life-saving procedure on children and adults. Ensure that any pool and spa you use has drain covers that comply with federal safety standards. If you're not sure, ask your pool service provider about safe drain covers. Teach children to stay away from drains, pipes, and other openings. Every year, there are numerous circulation entrapment incidents most of which involve an arm, leg, or some other body part or hair getting sucked into a drain or pipe or caught on a broken or missing cover. While most of these incidents aren't fatal, they're very scary and, as I mentioned, usually preventable. One additional way to prevent them is to ensure that children with long hair wear a bathing cap or pin their hair up. Hair can get sucked into drains and a child drown faster than you might think. Finally, take the CPSC's Pool Safety Pledge and urge everyone you'll be swimming with to do the same. You'll find the pledge at poolsafety.org slash pledge. If you've got a comment or a question or a suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it over. You can drop us a line through our website, mrdad.com. You can also find lots of archives of this show and also of previous columns that we've done. All that is at mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand-new show for you. But don't go yet, because, as you know by now, there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up.
0: More with Mr. Dad, Armin brought after this, from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls.
0: Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Thanks for staying with us. All parenting is preparation for letting go. However, the paradox of parenting is that the more we learn about adolescent development and risk, the more frightened we become for our children, and the more we may want to stay involved in our children's lives. This becomes particularly necessary, and also particularly challenging, in mid-to-late adolescence, the years just before and after students head off to college. That transition from high school to college is fraught with potential roadblocks and pitfalls for parents and students alike. With campus hazards like binge drinking and sexual assault, routine headlines and the skyrocketing rates of college mental health problems, parents are rightly concerned about shipping their children off to live independently. The years of late adolescence and young adulthood are a time when many mood disorders and other serious mental health issues emerge. And in this part of today's show, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about, with an expert who has written a new book on the topic, who's going to be talking to us about the difference between typical behavior and early warning signs of clinical disorder. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about the most stressful years of our kids' lives and what we as parents can do to help them survive and thrive during those years when positive parenting continues right after this.
2: You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next.
3: Visit Savebythescan.org for a simple quiz to
2: see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. Savebythescan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Anthony Rostain, who's the co-author of The Stressed Years of Their Lives, Helping Your Kids Survive and Thrive During Their College Years. Uh, Dr. Rostain, Anthony, thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, Delighted to be here.
1: Stressed years, should they be?
2: Well, to some extent, you know, we think of those years as the best years of our lives but there's always right. a little bit of stress in those years because they're years of change and of exploring new new places new ideas but we think that uh, these 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 years those the college years have become very stressed unlike in the past a greater degree of uh, anxiety we see in young people, and in their parents, in their families. So that's why we wrote the book, is to kind of help everyone prepare for that inevitable leaving home scenario, but hopefully with, with an eye towards making it a more successful launch.
1: Yeah. In, in a lot of ways, the college years going off to college should be a, a time of stress. I mean, they're, they're getting a chance to be on their own for a while, although they'll have a community of of like-minded individuals to, to hopefully go through that with, but they won't have the same level of parental supervision. But I mean, how much should we be involved to reduce that stress, and how much of it is a normal part of developments that they need to go through? I mean, if we're there too much... that
2: is that, that hits the question right on the mark. And to start with, we think that the preparation phase of leaving to go off to college should begin... Much earlier than it does nowadays, with a different mindset about it. Um, You know, what we've been detecting in the culture is a growing concern about getting kids into the best possible schools and going to all ends. Including sometimes beyond what we would say is ethical or legal to try to get your kid into the best college, and a lot of the emphasis is on academic preparation and on uh, you know showing off your your skills as uh, uh you know in the music or arts and uh you know packing your your resume so that colleges think you 're a well rounded person but what what gets missed often are the what we call social and emotional skills like. Managing your own life on your own, and so the best preparation parents can 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 in, in, you know engage in with their kids is to begin talking early on about these um, skills like being able to uh, manage your day, you know, get up on your own and manage your own schedule, do your own laundry, you know, get your get to bed on time. Those kinds of skills, and uh, that's one example of the of the of the kind of self self readiness that we believe parents ought to be thinking about once they're gone that's a whole different story but the first half of our book really focuses on preparing for the departure and and including having conversations with your kids open-ended conversations about things like being able to handle uh other people, getting along with people who are different from you or handling situations where, you know, you might not be included in a group that you want to join. Or what do you do if if somebody's offering you um, risky kinds of behaviors as, a, as, a, as an option? How do you handle risk? You know, how do yeah. you handle um, coping with frustration and disappointment? And how do you deal with... Um, going for help if you need it. So those are some of the ideas that we we throw out there that that, that parents need to think about as part of the college preparation. And then the other thing is what we think of as parental self-care. You know, are you, as a parent... Dealing with your own anxiety in a way that is is healthy and or uh, showing a role modeling kind of effect to your kids'll um, right. so we'll give you one concrete example complaint. Well, let, let, you know, let, let 's compla-
1: oh, come back to that one because i want to i want to talk to you about something else that just came up as you were as you were talking yeah. about all these all these things the, these obstacles and And challenges that kids are going to have to to be dealing with when they go off to college. What do you think about what's going on at so many campuses with the safe spaces and what I see – I don't want to turn this into a big political thing, but I see as a a restriction of free speech – on a lot of campuses, and where kids are not being exposed to opposing views or people who are not like them, and which is exactly yeah. what you said, is that they should be learning learning how to <laughs> right. deal with things so that they we, don't agree with. We try
2: to with. land right in the sort of not sort of getting into a political discussion. We think that right. diversity right. of opinions is important, and that you do have to go into a world that's going to. You know, there are going to be people expressing ideas that you may not disagree with, hopefully, though, in a civil manner. So when people talk about safe space, uh, I I don't think it means restricting speech, but I do think it means being more considerate if you disagree with people to avoid, you know, mudslinging or name-calling on either side, right, of any debate. And having a chance to – explore then um, a dialogue with people who you don't agree with, rather than modeling what I think is happening in the culture, which is a very um, polarized kind of discussion. So how do we create spaces in which people can feel safe to disagree with one another and to express opinions that might not be the most popular ones without feeling attacked? Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. I think having a chance to ex- uh, experience differences of opinion um, and, and not feeling as a result that uh, you're being ostracized for expressing those opinions. Um, but the other uh, by, this, by the same token, and this is where I think the new generation is in a different place than we were when we were going off to college, is that so much time spent online and interacting with other people mm-hmm. in a virtual reality, that sometimes just showing up in a room and discussing <laughs> things is new to people, right? they have not used to the kinds of debates or arguments they might have had right, uh, in, right. when, when, when in the past before the internet. And so, so much of social relationships are mediated through this interface of the, of the internet that when individuals show up in the same room, they're not prepared, right? They're not ready to either express themselves or to hear what others have to say. So that's part of the preparation we think think parents and kids need to talk about is can you practice describing how you you see a situation or are you going to be too timid or too intimidated to to say what's on your mind?
1: Well, it's so easy online and in social media to associate only with people who believe exactly Exactly. what you believe.
2: Exactly. You hit the nail on the head. We are worried about this. We're worried that kids come in there into college so sheltered and only listening to one side of a story that they really aren't prepared to engage with other ways of thinking. So, yeah, that's exactly the right, right uh, question to raise. How do you get your kid to listen to other sides of a story and to think about things in a more complex way?
1: All right, so before we went off on this little sidetrack here, which I think was an important one, but you were talking about the importance of parental self-care as a part of the preparation process.
2: Yeah, so, you know, parents focus a lot on how's my kid doing, how are they doing in school, you know, where are they going after school and driving them around or watching over them every minute. And what we're saying is, no, you know, you need to step back for your kid's sake. But then you also need to be thinking about, how are you handling the uh, the feelings and the, and the concerns you might have as your child approaches departure from home? Because it's, it's, it's a mixed kind of set of feelings. On the one hand, you're happy, my kid's growing up, they're moving on. On the other hand, it's, oh, my goodness, like, what am I going to do without them around? Especially if you're really spending a lot of time engaging with them. So we think that that process requires parents to, number one, reflect how am I? What am I concerned about? What are my biggest fears? And to begin to address them on their own rather than asking kids to reassure them, okay? because that's really backwards. And kids do best when they think their parents are ready to let them go, are, mm-hmm. are, are, are eager to see them succeed, but not meddling in their lives, and are, and are going to do things to take care of themselves. The example I was going to mention is one example that I think parents can take practically speaking is to, if they can tell their children, listen, I don't want you to stay up late online or, you know, looking at your cell phone. Well, are you doing the same? Are you managing your internet and cell phone use? Uh, because that's something that we think everybody needs to pay attention to since it's interfering with sleep and it's, and it's really creating all kinds of, of risks that we're not even aware of. Um, so once again, practice what you preach. Don't tell your kid they shouldn't drink and then drink too much yourself, that sort of thing.
1: talking with Anthony Rostain, who's the co-author with Janet Hibbs of The Stressed Years of Their Lives, Helping Your Kids Survive and Thrive During Their College Years. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Dr. Rostain about the other parts of preparing yourself and preparing your child to go off to college, what the stressors are, how to deal with them, and a lot more. I'm Armand Brant, and you're listening to Positive Parenting.
3: 180 over 111, and
0: I had a stroke. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke.
1: To the parenting. I'm Armin Brot, If you're just joining us, talking with Anthony Rostain, who's the co-author with Janet Hibbs of *The Stressed Years of Their Lives*, and wanted to ask you before we moved on to some of the other uh, stuff that we're talking about in the book, uh, that one of the things I, I came across in the research I was doing for a book I did a little while ago on on fathers, one of the my part of my series of books on fatherhood, uh, was the idea of of being needed. And it seems to be more of a dad thing than a mom thing in a sense. We, we get a lot of our satisfaction as parents from feeling needed by our kids. And when they go off to college, almost by definition, they don't need us as much anymore. And it can be, just as you were talking about the parental self-care, it just seemed like that should be perhaps part of something that parents should be thinking about, is that your role as a parent hopefully has been evolving over time since they were younger, but especially when they go off to college, you're not needed in the same way. That's
2: right. It's not that you're not needed. It's that you're needed in a different way. I I really like what you just said because instead of thinking it as just a loss, oh, they don't need me anymore, it's really my kids need me in a different way. right? They need me to be... able to coach them if they if they're asking for coaching, they need me to listen when they need to talk. And they need to to, uh, to they need us to provide for them, right? They're still our dependents. And I agree with you that, that it's too it's too easy to start to feel like, oh, they're off, they don't need me anymore. One of the ways I don't I don't think parents have thought through enough is how are you going to stay in touch with your kid when they're at at, at school? Like and, talking to them ahead of time and so, you know, for some people it'll be taught. It used to be the once a week phone call, right? Now it may be texting or, 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 or Skyping. How often is that going to happen? And, and how to make it a, a, a natural kind of conversation rather than a pressured one, because you want your, you want your kid to not feel like they've got to give you every single detail of their lives. Cause once again, you're trying to create an opportunity for them to do more on their own. But, but by no means, does going off to school mean your kid doesn 't need you and part of what the book is trying to say is the most important thing parents can do is convey to the kid their 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 genuine interest in what are they learning, who are they meeting, what are some of the cool things that are going on, and what are the things that might be bothering them about their experience and having those conversations in a in a relaxed way and rather than a you know interrogation um and a third degree,
1: how do you suggest that parents start talking about sexual issues that the kids are likely to face and im I'm, I'm wondering yeah. particularly because of i guess both sides there's the the me too thing, and there's also mm-hmm. the a growing number of of boys on campus who feel that they've been wrongfully accused of something and how do you, you have to have conversations with both boys and girls about? if you don't want to get into trouble, whether that's being accused Mm -hmm. or being put in a position you don't want to be in, you need to take some responsibility.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, a, just starting it that way, saying, listen, I know that, uh, you know, sex is something that people like to do when they're in college, and you're going to meet people you're attracted to. Let's talk about what you envision are some of the things that you're going to be um, looking to have happen, right? I mean, is it going to be you're going to want to meet someone and fall in love and wait until that happens, or do you want to just have more casual kinds of experiences? You don't have to give me the details, but what do you imagine? And then when the when the kids start to say, well, I imagine Imagine we're just going to you know, have fun, meet up at a party, and go drink. Okay, that's interesting. Well, do you know that, that the, 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 the fact is that when people consume alcohol, their judgment may be different, and your behavior may be judged the next day as not having been consensual? So that's something to think about. So, again, it's not being – it's not trying to scare anybody, but it's just getting them to think about how the, 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 the behaviors they engage in have to be more or less explicitly discussed ahead of time rather than just taking advantage of someone if they're not barely able to remember the next day what happened. And then they suddenly think, oh, God, this was not under my, you know, my consent. Right. Now, colleges right. – for the same token, colleges do spend a fair amount of time now educating incoming students about alcohol and substance use and about sexual behavior that is you know not acceptable they don't they don't mince words by saying that if someone says no, they mean no you 've got to respect that for example, and also to warn people that um, you know the uh, the circumstances under which encounters take place needs to be really one that's that's Protective of both individuals, that both people are vulnerable. Both people need to understand that they have to take responsibility for their actions. And asking someone else to make the decision or to, you know, uh, to be the one deciding for the two of you is not the way that most colleges see it. It's got to be, like you said, everybody has to take ownership of their behavior instead of just minimizing it and, or, or attributing it to, well, I didn't know what I was doing. I was drunk.
1: Yeah. On the subject of responsibility, how do you begin as as a parent and hopefully you're the parent the kind of parent who's encouraging independence or at least a, uh, trying to support independence how do you get across to the kids that perhaps they don't need to call home with every problem that they should be should be trying to <laughs> yeah. deal with things I on their own I love
2: that run. question so again i think that uh, the 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 discussion ahead of time of how one wants the relationship to to move ahead. It's two individuals now, parent and child, but the child is no longer a little kid. They're now an emerging adult. And to say, hey, you know, I would like to hear from you, but I'm not here to solve every little detail. Maybe there are other people who can help you solve the problem. Um, This is particularly the case, by the way, in, in people who are anxious. When there's a high degree of anxiety and fear of doing something wrong, Uh, kids may call home a lot and ask for that kind of help, and it's very hard for parents to say no because they want to help their kid, right? And The kid is pulling on them. Hey, help me, help me, help me. So I think the the comment the parent can make is, listen, I would love to be able to answer this question for you, but let's talk about how you, what are the options that you have in front of you and who else might help you with solving this problem? Because there are other people around the campus who might help you solve the problem of whatever it is, not liking your roommate, uh, feeling ignored by some the group of people you like, or not, not understanding what a teacher is doing. Um, you know, we really discourage." Um, parents getting in the, in the middle of a conversation a student has to have with a professor if they're not doing well in that professor's oh, yeah. class. So yeah. teaching your kid to advocate for themselves is what the parents should do. And that gives the message, number one, I, I believe that you have the ability to solve this. And number two, it isn't my mine to solve, it's yours to solve.
1: That's a tough one, though. I mean, because oh, it, 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 it overlaps a little bit with that being needed thing. Is, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. If you we get want that to be, call... Now, this is the main message
2: of the book. There's Even though there's a lot of anxiety and reasons to be uh, concerned about the world, that generally speaking, college is a great time and that your kid, once they get used to being there, will, will generally speaking... Um, be able to enjoy it and, and learn, and if they 're not having a good time, then they should be able to go and get help with no stigma because we worry that there are a lot of kids walking around who are afraid to to ask for help or to uh, from from anyone okay and they're not and they 're hiding this stuff from their parents, and what we want them to do is to say hey there 's a world of support in colleges now to help you with whatever you're, is bothering you um, and that you shouldn't uh shirk from that it's not a, there's no shame if you're depressed if you're feeling homesick if you're feeling confused if you're feeling angry at someone uh who didn't treat you right don't just you know Shove it, but think through. Who can, you, who can you talk this over? And most of the time, by the way, the peer groups are really strong in this respect, and there are peer helpers. And at the at University of Pennsylvania, we train um, students who are interested in having uh, what we call the I-care conversation, and that's where I say to you, hey, I care about you. I, I notice you're acting a little bit down. I care. I want to know what's going on. Can we talk? And that's the sort of support we, we think can help young people learn how to solve problems on their own without over-relying on their parents.
1: I've been talking with Anthony Rostain, who's the co-author with Janet Hibbs of The Stressed Years of Their Lives, Helping Your Kids Survive and Thrive During Their College Years. Uh, you mentioned that you're at the University of Pennsylvania and that there's the, the program that you just mentioned. Is there a website where people can find out a little bit more about the book yes, or the program? Yeah, if you go
2: to the University of Pennsylvania, Well, if you go to thestressedyears.com, www.thestressedyears.com, you can get uh, more information about the book. And at the University of Pennsylvania, you just type in uh, this, uh, the University of Pennsylvania.edu um, uh, and, uh, and you will be able to see... Um, There's a whole link to the uh, support
1: services there. Okay. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you.